Let's let's do this thing. Yeah. Let's kill some elves. Elves, eh? Have you got iron around the room? Uh, Horseshoe on the door to make sure we're in there somewhere. (laughs) Horseshoe on the door to make sure we go uninterrupted by elves. Uh, No, we've got a bottle of absinthe. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so absinthe. Uh, It's foreign for wormwood. Shit. Hello and welcome once again to Radio Moorpork, the, podpa- uh, the podcast, we're off to a flying start here, yeah. the podcast where we go through 30 Pratchett's Discworld series, reviewing and analysing each book in chronological order. This week we're talking about Lords and Ladies, this week on Column, and... And I am Lord Steve. Lord Steve. Well, I was a Lord or Lady and I opted for Lord. What, what got we you? could both be Lords. What got you this elevation to Lordship? Um, it's probably the Carlsberg in your hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you giving me Carlsberg. A tall, to make frosty you, you Carlsberg. <laughs> we've, we've alienated the amount of uh, prohibitionist listeners we have now. Also hipsters, because we mm. usually, um, you know, have, you know, more craft beer, but, you know. Oh, we do, listeners. I, I, I assure you, please. We've been Don't, inebriated yeah. for every single episode leading up to this. But anyway, uh, so yes, we're talking about Lords and Ladies, and by your leave column, I suppose, before we start, I should probably read out the synopsis of uh, this novel. You certainly should. Okay, so, having returned from their adventure in Genoa, the witches discover that their hometown of Lancre is being rampaged by crop circles. Youngest witch Magrat Garlic also has her plate full as she has discovered she's going to be married to King Verence on Midsummer's Night, and Granny Weatherwax has started having visions. Not the good kind. The I'm going to die pretty soon kind. It's all the work of the lords and ladies, the elves. These aren't the elves you remember from fairy tales. They're beautiful and graceful, but they're also cruel, malicious, evil and sadistic. And they want to rule over all of Longer. Granny Weatherwax and her tiny argumentative coven have really got their work cut out this time. With full supporting cast of dwarves, wizards, trolls, morris dancers and one orangutan. And lots of hey nonny nonny and blood all over the place. That was taken from the official, uh, well, I was going to say the official Wikipedia page. (laughs) I think it was Goodreads. um, Made by Sir Henry Wikipedia himself. He's a great man. A great man. So, first question, Colin, that I need to ask. What did you think of this book? Um, I really, really, really liked it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it, it, it occurred to me, and I don't know how I I forgot this really, because it's one I'm, I'm... like had read once or twice before, but I listened to a lot on audiobook, so it's pretty familiar with it. But it like it had sort of passed me by how much of a sequel it is to um, which is abroad. Like I I don't know if it's the same in your edition, but in mine he actually prefaces it with a thing explaining yes, what happened. Yes, and you know it's, it's not entirely essential or anything. Like you could easily read this without having read which is abroad and you know more or less understand anything. But not only the fact that it follows on from it in a chronological sense, but like starting more or less where Witches Abroad left off, but in a real thematic sense, like this feels like I doubt he, I doubt he, I don't know if he meant it entirely, but this felt like a perfect conclusion to a Weird Sisters Witches Abroad Lords and Ladies trilogy. It, it brings does. in a lot mm. of elements from the other two that again you wouldn't. Like you wouldn't be left completely uh, confused or 
um, annoyed if you hadn't read those books and were reading this one. I'm sure it would still be very satisfying, very good book. But having read those and having read them, like, well, certainly having read Weird Sister, which is abroad relatively recently for the podcast, it I felt it really paid off. Like, there were so many bits that were jumping out at me. It's like, oh, wow, that's, mm-hmm. you know, here's is referring back to that. And I do feel a lot of that does come from uh, Magrat's arc. Yeah. Though, because I feel like that it's, um, because this does continue again into Masquerade and Carpe Juggalum. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that we revisit the witches again, but it does, in a sense, come off as a reboot. And I don't say that in, ver- in a very cynical way, because I do think Masquerade in particular works very well. I, if I remember correctly, I really enjoyed that book. Carpe Juggalum, I, I remember at the time thinking it was a bit like Lords and Ladies in a it sense. It is, yeah. It does feel like they're just replacing elves with vampires, which, which is fine, because I remember it is pretty enjoyable. But um, the main difference, obviously, between the first three books and those two books is Magrat being replaced by Agnes Nitt. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I was reading it, like I kept f- uh, honing in on Magrat's arc and how interesting I found it. There was a lot of... I found, I found there was an awful lot of metaphors, which by all rights, should have conflicted throughout the book um, in terms of like Magrat's journey and how she properly becomes the queen. But um, overall, I have to say, I think, I think it works because, um, because Terry Pratchett doesn't sell his books as like very, very deep uh, investigations of character. They're, they really are just like yarns and adventures. Mm-hmm. But having, uh, you know, this really, this, this great emotional journey that we're, we were investing in, invested in and we have been since Weird Sisters many books ago, I just think, yeah, it's a very satisfying, punchy novel, really. Whereas, like, other ones had great commentary. This is just really, really gratifying to read. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a sense of uh, catharsis about it, a kind of sense of, like, grit your teeth at some point, punch the air in the others, mm. and... Um, it's really visceral, and again, I mean, when you say he doesn't make his sell his novels as um, like deep character studies, I amend that myself to they're not sold as deep character studies, like right down no, to absolutely. the old Sorry, kind yes. of Josh, Josh Kirby covers, which I love, but really bright. Like they're they're all of them look from the outside to the kind of you know unacquainted reader, like mad fantasy comedy romps, and mm. in a lot of ways they are. And then when you get beneath that, there is all this. You know, wonderful oh, character and demanding stuff. We'll always come back to Vimes and that's it. <laughs> but McGrath here, uh, I I he- read one blogger, Deborah Pless, I think her name is. I hope I put that right. Uh, described her as, um, you, you know, they make the jokes throughout it about her being a virgin, being the maiden of the uh, maiden mother crone um, witch trio, but also that, like, uh, her and Vrens, neither of them are very sexually educated yeah. but uh, this blogger made the point that she's also a mental virgin <laughs> you know and the idea of she's very naive and like uh, lacks the experience of the other two and this book in a lot of ways is about her losing that uh, mental yeah. virginity mm-hmm. like the whole thing throughout of that nanny and granny sort of shunt her out of the their investigation into the elves on the basis of oh she'd get completely the wrong idea to me feels really harsh but it's probably true as well mm. um, she would and in the end I, I suppose it depends how much you want to buy um, how much Granny sort of foresaw what she was doing to McGrath like um, that it would actually spore McGrath on to be much more 
take control of her own destiny and you know gain much more fortitude and so on that, it, that, that bit at the end when uh, McGrath says I hated her and hated her and Nanny says uh, you got so worked up that you stood up to the queen like meaning you know oh because she um, made you so annoyed this is ultimately led to a good thing and I'm ne- I, I can never decide whether like Nanny's arguing that Granny knew that the whole time you know this what she was banking on was McGrath coming good or not but either way I, I still think it you know that development of McGrath from kind of a wet hen into uh, cold eyes action hero um, but, but still with a good deal of, of wet hen about her works really well absolutely and um, there's one thing that I found particularly interesting is that um, we spend a lot of time in uh Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad, where Magrat is constantly looking for um, Granny Weatherwax's approval. Like it, it. She, she's constantly verbally. She says, "No, well, I don't need her. I don't need her." Mm-hmm. But she is visibly upset whenever you know um, her ideals and Granny Weatherwax's ideals don't particularly sync up. And it's not. It's it's certainly not resolved in Weird Sisters. Equal right or not equal rights? Pardon me. Uh, Witches Abroad. It's not resolved there because she's still kind of in awe on her and it's a constant case of she, she I think if I remember rightly she usually has an argument with Granny and then they kind of resolve it and she once again remains in awe of Granny Weatherwax and then it continues on to the next book what I like in this one is that I think she in a certain sense grows out of that um, she what, what I particularly like is when she finds the suit of armour mm-hmm. in the castle which belonged to the previous which I, I was trying uh, to find the name Incy in, that was it, it yes. never actually existed but, exactly yeah. and that's, that's what I think is really important that's a really key factor in this book the fact that she isn't taking inspiration from someone else you know she well in a sense she is I suppose she kind yeah. of has a falsified she took inspiration from a falsified person but because she takes inspiration from this person this person who uh, basically she invented in her head in a sense you know with, in, uh, with uh, influence from this painting but uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that she came into her own as this warrior queen person and no living or deceased person uh, inspired that. It basically, she came into her own. She basically became her own person. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's sort of like the old kind of fairy tale thing, about the placebo thing about, um, oh, I, I'm not never a, you know, a good whatever... Uh, Go, uh, gonna win this race unless I take this magic drink it's like ah the drink was just water all along yeah you know, yeah that's... belief in yourself um, I think it follows neatly on from Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad too and that in both of them you had a kind of external fictional contra- uh, construct limiting and being forced on real people so mm-hmm. like in Weird Sisters it's the way the witches are being depicted in the play and in Witches Abroad it's all of uh, Lily's story archetypes and here you have McGrath kind of choosing to take this uh, fictional construct and make it real and make it work for her. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's sort of, it isn't the tail wagging the dog anymore. You know, it's, exactly. Yeah. And actually there's a great um, almost mirror image really in the character of Desiderata. Or sorry, not Desiderata, uh, uh, Diamanda. Sorry, who's Desiderata again? Who Desiderata is the f- original fairy godmother in That's who I'm thinking Witches of. Abroad. Yes, yes. Um, now the uh, Diamanda, who's this weird contorted mirror image in a way, because 
she takes Granny Weatherwax's version of uh, witchcraft and makes it cool. It's and it kind of seems like that's what Magrat wanted all along. Yeah, you know, yeah. she wants to you know use magic in this really helpful, assertive way. Whereas uh, Granny Weatherwax has always been very all about you know being vague and confusing and trying to convince people to help herself themselves. Yeah, there, there's a lovely bit when um, I think it's after they've taken Diamanda to McGrath to kind of uh, you know basically make sure she doesn't die from the elf arrows, uh, which again is a nice bit of Granny and Nanny sort of admitting McGrath has this unique skill that she does mm. better than either of us in kind of healing and herbs and. We, like we're you know not going to uh, dance around we're going to take her there and in fact like Granny gets into a nice argument with McGrath there where McGrath's trying to act as if oh you want me to help do you and Granny's saying well are you not going to help are you going to let her die and she knows McGrath isn't but um, when she's uh, Diamond is unconscious in a room and the other two which is left and McGrath looks at her and thinks something like about how beautiful she was and how cool she looked and how she had stood up to um, apparently stood up to Granny Weatherwax and it's like McGrath couldn't wait until uh, she regained consciousness so she could get busy being jealous of her <laughs> yeah. yeah and actually there's that great line in there as well that absolutely reflects what you're saying there was uh, the reason Granny Weatherwax was a better witch than Magrat was um, she didn't think it matter, mattered what um, was it what plants or medicines you gave people because you know uh, they could cure themselves with that whole placebo mm-hmm. effect but the reason uh, Magrat was a better doctor than Granny was because she thought it did matter. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, it's a great acknowledgement of like, yes, finally, you're actually saying Magrat has some positive qualities. Mm-hmm. And this is where like, they, they really, sorry, uh, Terry Pratchett really hammers that home in this one. It's, it's, it's kind of touched upon. I, I didn't read we- Weird Sisters with yourself and Rose, so I can't remember it that well. But I remember in Witches Abroad, there's that brief moment where um, she kicks the snake. Uh, she basically confronts the snake, yeah. which everyone's afraid of. And it's kind of a brief victory, but it's not, you know, uh, character changing or anything. No. It's just kind of like, yes, okay, yeah, small that, victory. That, great. that book ends with, you know, Granny saying to her, you're a wet hen, McGrath Garland, yeah. when they're on their brooms. But that also has the part where we, we talked about it in our Witch Brought episode where when Granny sticks her hand into the fire and defeats Mrs. Gogol's um, voodoo and she looks mm. at McGrath as if to say, I'm getting this off your... Uh, Zen wave the scorpion I like ideas earlier. So there's again like this is so many seeds sown in those two witches books that come to fruition here um in such a really effective amazing way. Um, um can you remember do you mind if I ask in Weird Sisters was there anything even remotely like that at towards the end where she acknowledges um Magrat in that way? Uh in Weird Sisters mm. Oh no, I can't really. And that's because it just it, it strikes me like as a nice little uh, trifecta of like uh, acknowledgements. In the first one, Weird Sisters doesn't acknowledge uh, Magra at all, if if we're remembering that right. And then in Witches Abroad, she just looks at her, and it's ambiguous. You, well, it's not ambiguous. You know the way it's phrased. It says that um, it seemed like she was looking at Magra yeah. for a second longer. Seems sort of ambiguous. But then in this one, it does. It's like finally she acknowledges her in the smallest possible way when uh, Margaret says I think I'll leave my hair the way it is for the wedding when it's got branches and thorns in it and Granny Wedderwax just nods in approval mm-hmm. and it's just it's the smallest thing but it's it feels so gratifying that finally yes instead of just it being a case of Margaret and Granny having an argument and Margaret apologizing and once again being in awe of Granny in this one 
Magrat comes through, become really comes into herself, and Granny finally approves of her. And it just feels so satisfying when that finally yeah. happens at the end of this. I, I I found it very very satisfying. Now it's um, it's I think it's why it's such a good book. It's a very gratifying book. Lots of I'm not gonna lie. I do think there's little bits of fan service there, like the idea of bringing um, Ridicoli in with uh, Granny Weatherwax. It's it's a very very fun scene, like and not necessarily like shallow either, because. I do think by introducing that element to the book, it does something that the previous books didn't do and makes Granny Weatherwax seem sort of human. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. And I think it, it lends a bit of pathos to those parts where, like, she's imagining, um, you know, what her life could have been like. And initially this is a comfort to her when she realises, oh, I'm actually seeing parallel selves, I'm not losing my mind. But then the, the elf queen, you know sort of torments her with that saying I'll show you you know you you have no friends no one will mourn you when you're gone and you know you, you know now how you could have been happy mm. and that isn't some abstract idea for us as readers like hmm yeah what would granny be like if she settled down and got a family we can see what would have happened right there mm. because Rick Cully's there the whole time and pining and saying oh what if we had gotten together and it's it played up for comedy but because you have that when the, the queen starts saying about you know what a torment this is to granny to see how happy she could have been we can we can visualize that more more clearly mm. like that alternative is like it is for her it's there floating on front of us you know mm. um, never I, to be fully grasped i also think um it it, it does make sense because uh, granny's mind is always described pretty much as a steel trap you know mm. like it's it's really sharp and even though you know Terry Pratchett is the god of this world, like so he can, you know, he can let us into like Granny Weatherwax's Granny Weatherwax's mind, but you do sort of get the sense because Granny is so sharp and she wouldn't want people to know her thoughts. You sort of get the sense that even this far into the series, we still don't know her mind that well because she doesn't want us to. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of hints at the idea that she might somewhat want that life. She might. There's a small part of her that yearns for it. You can see it at the very end where um, she's talking to Rid Cully and uh, she says through gritted teeth, he says, we might have been happy, you know? Oh, yeah, that's that's such a sweet moment when mm. she said about seeing her other selves' lives and she says, she seemed happy and I ain't easily pleased. Mm. Um, and, you know, he says, do you think, God, oh, do you think it all worked out well somewhere? And says, yeah, here. And then he kind of relents, says, yeah, I'm I there too. I mean, this book is, uh, like, you have three... Uh, couples really and um, yes. Nanny Reed Cully uh, uh, McGrath Arendt and of course Nanny and Casanunda <laughs> like they can be played out for comedy and for the plot but there's a lot of really sweet moments like I mean that's the bit when McGrath goes into Varence's room and sees that his um, his bed is he doesn't sleep in the bed he sleeps by the door because when he was a fool he slept at the door to his master and now he's a king he sleeps at the door to his kingdom and she thinks like how could you not love a man like that like I, I welled up and I was reading that I mean that's that's so lovely and kind of says so much for both for you know both of those characters and, and their relationship and then even the way they get married at the end with her and the kind of torn wedding dress and armour and him and his fools yes motley that's great uh, and the bit when the queen the elf queen changes her appearance and Granny thinks she looked like a, like a better version of McGrath. She looked like what Varenz saw when he looked at McGrath. Yeah. And, and like it describes her as being really beautiful and things. And obviously like so many descriptions of McGrath are for like comedic effect about looking like a, 
you know, a haystack and a hurricane kind of and watery eyes like, and eyes like um, runny eggs are the ones that yeah, I always remember. <laughs> so like 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 flat as an ironing board. Um and you just you have this moment where you see the one guy who loves her really sees her as something much more beautiful and it's not even played up for like um you know romantic appeal it's not we're not in Varence's head or in McGrath's head as, as he describes this mm. to her we're in granny's as she just thinks god the elf queen's doing something really horrible here so we kind of get like we get you know two things in that scene we get to sort of uh, malevolent imagination of the elf queen. We get three. We get then we get the anticipation of what's going to happen when McGrath arrives and this inevitable concentration of confrontation happens. And we get this extra insight into like how much uh, Varenz loves McGrath. Absolutely, yeah. And um, just just bring to bring it back to um, Granny and Ridicully again. One thing I found really surprising reading it this this time around, and I didn't really pick up on it before, is. Granny Weatherwax and Mostrum Ridicully have surprisingly good chemistry. Like, genuinely surprising. Because if you think about it, considering what we know of Granny Weatherwax in all the previous books, it's hard to imagine her having chemistry with anybody. Because, no, honestly, because I think there's a moment where, uh, maybe it's in a later book, where uh, Nanny Og is hosting a party and there's a line somewhere in there that's basically said Nanny Og is the witch to bring when you want like you know party friends that kind of thing but uh, and whereas Granny Weatherwax is clearly the more powerful witch you wouldn't necessarily want to invite her around for tea you know like it, it constantly stresses that it's unpleasant to be in Granny Weatherwax's company mm-hmm. and I just found it really interesting that like when Ridicully transports both of them down to the river at Lankra and they just have the general banter it's actually it really is very good like there's a moment in it where um ridicully shows uh granny the crop circle that has appeared in his head on his head and the dialogue it doesn't it it still reads like uh, granny weatherwax's dialogue but it doesn't sound like she's um you know trying to impress she she doesn't sound like she's trying to stress that she's the superior mm-hmm. in um the in like this uh uh, in this dichotomy in this like uh, conversation um, first of all clearly because she is she's the superior in everyone but it just feels more casual like just the way that paragraph ends is really simple it's like oh well look you're going bald eh you know it's it's almost like a joke which is mm-hmm. unheard of with uh, Granny Weatherwax except in the last one when she tried to tell a joke about five times and kept failing <laughs> but um, I just found that really interesting like it's 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 surprising that it's there and it's also very gratifying that it's not overt because if you were reading it and like the um, chemistry was really like oh wow they're getting on really well then you'd be like well why aren't they getting together and it's like because that's not who Granny Weatherwax is she is dedicated to like witchhood and strangely enough just making the world a better place so it makes sense that yes there is um, a more casual sense of her being relaxed when she's with Ridicoli, but that's not her. So I just found that really interesting. Anyway, just the fact yeah, that I was there. Yeah, um, thinking about it, I think she's like she sees a lot uh, in Ridicoli and what she sees in Nanny Og, mm-hmm. in that they're both characters who um, Ridicoli and Nanny who are outwardly sort of ridiculous and really fun, but then beneath it all, actually have really powerful minds and kind of. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once their backs to the wall, once the shit hits the fan, 
they they're they will be there for you. Yeah, and How and, and she is perceptive enough to know that and and you know and see that with him in that way that other characters don't. Like I, I love the bits in the other wizard books. You occasionally get like Ponder Stibbons sort of the, or the the burser I think in them. Uh, moving pictures before he's completely lost his sanity he sort of has this inkling of like oh hang on this guy is actually kind of clever you know mm. and, and he just doesn't let us know about it a lot what's or, the line in this one that like uh, a lot of people think that the our chancellor was uh, simple or dim but what actually was his mind was like a, a freight train it was just really difficult to change direction <laughs> yeah, yeah. so like that that actually sums it up I think really well it's like yeah it's a really powerful force it just doesn't it just doesn't like adapt to the world around it, you know, which is a really great way of describing it. There, there's so much comedy too, and like I mean, their whole all the bits with the wizards and and this one makes you laugh. I love his like attempts to nostalgically reminisce against about <laughs> longer and none of the rest of them are all that interesting. Yeah, yeah. and then like just the lines when he says about him, oh, if I had a dollar for every time I was thrown out of that pub, I'd have. <laughs> Four dollars and thirty eight cents, or or um. Uh, Sean Ogg says about his dad being Sobriety Ogg and be dead 30 years, o- 30 years ago and ponders but to point out that you know he's not old enough for that and he says uh, this is the country people do things differently down here and more often <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a great line <laughs> oh I love that like apart from else this book is just really really funny like I yeah I, you know absolutely in, in so many places for some reason I don't know why they work so well but I loved all of like Casanunda's blatant lies I just found really funny like when the trolls investigating them and he's like aha you've got a dwarf I'm a giant but you're really small I've been ill <laughs> yeah <it's>, that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> there was actually eight horses I believe they stole from me yeah it's an excellent thing um, in terms of themes did you find I feel like uh, this one was lighter in terms of in terms of themes, like for example, like small gods and witches abroad, which dealt with like kind of not exactly heady stuff, but very rich themes. And this one, I felt like there wasn't as much. What's your view on that? Um, I've heard other people say similar when I was kind of reading around and looking at other reaction to this, and that like it's it's. Uh, I feel and and I was thinking this is like a one potential reservation I have, but it wasn't really an issue for me. In that, like I feel like a lot of the thematic stuff in it like relies on outside folklore knowledge like all of the stuff mm. about elves and glamour and iron and the iron in the mind and society kind of civilizing and moving on and moving on to sort of like dark folklore and gods we had in the early days like elves is all stuff that you know for me I mean I eat that up with a spoon like I love that sort of those folk horror elements I was reading it you know loving this but I was sort of thinking try to think I uh, you know maybe these could could have been dealt with, with more depth in the book itself you know this idea of what granny says about like humans living in cities and having the iron in the mind now and they don't need mm. elves anymore so you know what were elves there for in the first place and um do you think it would be improved if it had more of that? Yeah, see, that's what I mean. I mean, for me, it wouldn't be because mm. for me, anyway, it was it was always just enough. Yeah. But I don't know if that's just because I read and think about so much of this stuff anyway that, you know, it's it's mm. like, um, like th- that will be enough. But at the same time, yeah, like subjectively in the only way I can, like, no, I don't think I can. But I, I can mm. see why what you mean, what you mean when you say it seems a little thinner thematically that's something like small gods or witches abroad or can I just add to that now I'm not by any means saying that that makes the book worse 
in no way mm-hmm. because I would I'm rating this very very highly on the current list that we have. Um, I, I think it's an excellent book, and just because it doesn't have you know more substantial themes to kind of pick apart, doesn't make it a, like a, a lesser book than other ones that we've read so far. Just to clarify that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I, I still, by the same token, I was trying to look for themes, motifs, anything in the book, and the key one that I found personally, the one that resonated most with me, was appearances. Yeah, because simply because I mean. We've already talked about the uh, Magrat, the way they get married, and how the witch, or not the witch, the elf queen uh, changes her appearance. We have uh, Diamanda, who dresses a certain way, and of course the elves themselves, who use glamour, who their power stems from, what was it, making other people feel insignificant, not yeah. from any power they have themselves, and all of that is the way they look. So I feel like that's a particularly strong theme running through this. But I think it's interesting that there's a very strong differentiate differentiation between appearances and false appearances because you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking that um, if we think of Granny Weatherwax as an avatar for uh, Terry Pratchett and she's constantly dismissing like, you know, uh, stuff like Magrat's, you know, jewelry collection and stuff like that. So you, you think that the message here is that uh, image isn't important but I don't think that's it. I think it's just the message that he's trying to get across and I think is... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it kind of comes together in, in the final scenes during the wedding is that uh, image your image should reflect who you are internally, not just who you're trying to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's something like the idea of, you know, um, substance over... Uh, style or outward appearance is something that's like dealt with more maybe subtly or you know in in some ways with more uh intrigue and nuance in something like moving pictures Hmm. but it's just done so well here like that rant the granny has to the queen at the end when she talks about like uh you don't age and you don't change and what doesn't change can't grow Mm. and like yeah a little bit like uh very, very I'm, what's that like I'm better than you madam and that ain't hard uh, it's <laughs> like it's so wonderfully written and so well built to you know that you mm. do have a very simple message of like be yourself appearances don't matter like you can boil it down to that but it's like it's like the really glib exercise you see in people kind of say uh, dismissing sports they don't like where they're like oh it's just some people kicking a bit of lead around or, you yes, know, like, yeah. oh, you know, that's just some people like punching one another or something like that. Well, when you have, and, and sports, the first one that comes to my head, we sort of had this argument with someone recently, but you have it like basically all across like arts and entertainment and culture where someone will glibly try to dismiss something they're not interested in by just boiling it down to its very simplest in a way that like isn't inaccurate, but sort of robs that thing of its, uh, magic and its force and its appeal and you could do that with this book they could say oh you know ultimately what's it saying it's, it's saying yeah it's, it's be yourself that's like that's an interesting you know, way of that, like that. that's just some kind of hallmark card saturday morning cartoon rubbish but it does so with you know uh structure and characters and dialogue that are absolutely a grade a mm-hmm. um and again like Builds on and improves so much of the stuff of the um, a lot of the earlier witch novels. Like 
when myself and Rose reviewed Weird Sisters, uh, one criticism I have had of it was that Lunkra we didn't feel as lived in as it could. Like, mm. it, like part of that book is about um, Felmet trying to turn the population against the witches, and I thought like in in that book you don't kind of get enough of a sense of what like the norm is in Lunker, like the witch's normally respected role in the community and mm. so that when it begins to change this would then have impact whereas here Lunker feels really lived in you see a lot of the normal people you see how kind of how life works there you get a sense of uh, what you know witches are regarded like how people react to panic and things like that and um, even when it's stuff about like some of the Morris men are kind of annoyed about a uh, granny you know and they'll say like oh that old baggage but they're also scared of her and kind of respectful against like so that ties into it when the queen starts talking about to granny about how no one loves you no one will mourn you you think oh yeah we've seen normal people in the village not liking her that much Mm. and this hits home and the more established longer is then when you have this upset to the status quo in the coming of the elves the bigger that makes it seem yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And a, another key part of that actually is bringing it back to Ridicully again. Is his nostalgia for the place? Does it? it it's it's in, it's great that it has the dual effect that it gives us a, a better idea of what Lankara uh, location is, and also establishes like his history with the place, and you know sets him yeah. up sets him up as a romantic interest. Because actually, if you didn't have that that nostalgic sense of it. I don't think his relationship with Granny would have worked at all because, you know, he's very kind of what ho and hunting and beer. So if he didn't have that history and he met Granny, for for example, if he met Granny Weatherwax and um, he'd never been to Lankra before and they tried to force that relationship, it wouldn't work. No, it would take a much longer book and the book probably wouldn't be better. Exactly. You know, but I find that that's a great thing that I found in this book because I found in almost every example we've said, Almost every occurrence in this book serves at least a dual purpose, you know, which is great. It's a wonderful thing for a book to, for like every element, well, most elements at least, and actions in it that take place. It's not just to progress the story. It like it's doing one thing and it's doing another thing. Like and when you step back and look at it that way, it's just it's it's a really really incredible thing. Like even the likes of um, uh, Nanny Og's date with Casanunda. That does a couple of things, actually. First of all, and most gratifyingly, it gives Nanny Og it gives Nanny Og a date, a moment to actually enjoy herself, and like be kind of gives you a glimpse of the woman she used to be when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it also distracts her from uh, what she should be doing, which I think is keeping an eye on the stones. At that, I point, was about to say, yeah, from a pure plot purpose. Like, you could say the reason Casanunda and Red Cully show up is to get Nanny and Granny out of the wedding entertainment mm. so that when stuff starts to go wrong and the elves appear, they aren't there to immediately try to put a stop to it. Mm. But, you know, there's so much more effort put in here than just making plot devices who yeah, it's not just roll the case up and, of, and whisk the two of them off. Yeah, you yeah. could have just said, oh, um, we'll make Nanny Og have to deal with a troll outside town and Granny yeah. Weatherwax has to be called away to look after a child who's dying in another mm-hmm. part of town. Like, it could have been that simple, but they put the work into it. And like even uh, Cassinunda showing up could very well have been as something as like really bland. It's like, oh, well, Nanny Og has to deal with uh, 
you know, some horny dwarf and she has to kind of fend off his advances. But instead, it actually revels in it. It's like, wow, Nanny Og hasn't had a date in a long time. And you can see her, she's kind of blushing and saying like, oh, wow, this is this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's a side of Nanny Og that we hadn't, hadn't really, well, we had seen before, but it's explored in greater depth here. And I really, really appreciated that. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, and then the scene when they go up to the long man um, is... That's great. I love yeah, that Yeah, is, is all the better for her having someone there you know, who doesn't know her very well and is talking to her and then you're getting this better sense of it. Um, that, like, that's... Uh, I like how kind of... um, it's, it's been a true... It's been something consistent with Nanny, uh, true a lot of what I mentioned before, how sort of covertly formidable she is. Mm. Um, that whether it's in this, it's getting uh, her uh, grandchild to, wait, to get the bag of sweets or run into the magic circle when she waves the bag of sweets so that mm. Granny ends up beating Diamanda by default in the witch's duel. Or when she shows up and gets the King of the Elves to, you know, stick his oar in and ultimately help defeat the Queen. And I love that, like, um, that rant she gives them as well, the threat about, uh, um, you know, letting all wizards come up and dig up the long man and turn it dull and how she'll be sad. But, you know, like, she's got kids and they don't live in fear like previous generations is great. Like, it's it's uh, once unlike her to be so serious and yet perfectly in keeping with her kind of mm. uh like family oriented character her sort of body exterior but ultimately she knows what the world's like and she can kind of use that to her advantage she's she knows what these like yeah i suppose the stultifying civilizing of the world like stuff like the long man getting less mysterious and more boring you know just being studied by dull academic wizards mm. would cause her pain but she she can use that to her advantage as well um and again, there's like going back to that idea of it relying on some folklore that it doesn't go into. Uh, it doesn't go into a lot of it directly, but so much of it's 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 layered. Like um, when she says, "I have the iron that goes everywhere," and she's able to bring a horseshoe in, and you know, a horseshoe is like probably one of the most fundamental symbols of man domesticating nature. Mm. Um, so it's essentially, uh, and then when she talk rants about you know where sort of civilizing the long man and just making this boring academic thing that is also about a kind of you know another step in that same process so you mm. see then like it's it's never directly said oh here's how she can bring a horseshoe into this place that doesn't have iron but thematically in a layered subtle sense you know all, all of that is there yeah absolutely and it's very interesting that like she is uh domesticating nature in a very fundamental way you know simply by going to the Lama, asking for for her help. It's it's a very kind of simplified version of it. And it's interesting how uh, uh, her son, it's Jason Ogg, who's the blacksmith, yeah. isn't it? Like you can see how that's being like um, fortified further down into like uh, later generations. So yeah, I think that's, that's, that's really interesting as well. I think my favorite summary of Granny, or, sorry, Nanny Ogg's character is actually um, when she goes to Granny Weatherwax's house and uh, they've been surveying the land and trying to gather information and uh, Granny's saying, yeah, I've been going all over the countryside and like, you know, there's something, something's wrong, like there's unrest in the land Mm -hmm. and Nanny's just kind of nodding and smiling along and then Granny Weatherwax cops that Nanny knows everything that she's saying. It's like, how how do you know all this? Oh, I asked our Jason. And it's like, I should have done that. If I had once upon a time, I would have done that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, as you said, it's it's a wonderful thing that um, Terry Pratchett downplays Nanny a lot, 
but she is an extremely formidable force. Like, inevitably, when you think of the witches, you do think of Granny because she mm-hmm. is like the force of nature to be reckoned with. And because Nanny Og, Nanny Og is only ever compared to her, she's always by Granny Og, uh, Granny, Granny Og, Granny Weatherwax's side. Inevitably, you will kind of dismiss her a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. So but the comic relief, exactly. But when you when you actually look at her as a character, like she's just very, very interesting. She's got she's very, um, she's got really rich characterization. Something I really, really appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even the idea about like uh, her being so mean to her daughters in law mm. um, is interesting because it's just this this flaw that actually seems you feel like is wholly in character you can imagine absolutely um matriarchal figures like that like resenting any kind of a new female influence but in a very you know semi-conscious like casually cruel sort of way rather than actually any you know grand big gestures against them um and the bit, the bit when they think Granny's dead and McGrath is really upset and she notes that Nanny isn't, I think it's really good because she says about, um, she says, I buried a couple of husbands, I, I buried, what was it, like three husbands and a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you get used to it and there's just so much there because, you know, you call a child who's lost its parents an orphan and you call a, a husband who's lost his wife a widower and a wife who's lost her husband a widow. And they don't have a real a word for a parent that's lost a child because there's probably no word that could really do it justice True. in terms of what a horrifying experience that is. And suddenly, again, we just get this insight into like, oh, she's she's had that experience. And this is actually this, like in the same way that Rick Cully has this beneath all her bluster, has that locomotive mind that's actually running along quite powerfully mm-hmm. beneath all of her body-friendly exterior. There actually is this... Uh, old woman that has been kind of like hardened by experience um and it's yeah it's another thing where like you only just get it for a second and but it it feels at once uh surprising and interesting but also wholly consistent with her character Mm. it's um it comes it all comes back to like the whole thing about appearances again like how you really can't judge any like because if you think about just the way people um uh, perceive Nanny Og largely I think it does have to do with her appearance not just physically but also her general mannerisms mm-hmm. as well because like you know she's always quaffing a beer laughing and she just looks like a really friendly old woman so you don't really take that into account but people do because they've people in Longcrit do because they've lived with Nanny Og they know she's a force to be reckoned with um, I also think it's really interesting there's a line in it where um, uh Granny Weatherwax talks about uh, she compares elves to cats saying that we wouldn't like cats if they look like frogs and it's a really profound thing because I remember like when I read it this time I was like I kind of sat back and thought wow yeah if cats looked like frogs I probably wouldn't like them (laughs) at all they'd be horrible horrible things (laughs) it's um, it's really interesting and you find yourself doing this this is like it's even as we're talking about it now I realise this is a theme that's actually very, very strong in this book. Like, it's really... It permeates many aspects of it. The unicorn is another uh, part of it mm-hmm. as well. And again, now, again, it's just a alternate version of elves, really. You know, it's like a creature, a mythical creature that we always assume is very beautiful and majestical and gra- uh, graceful. But I think it's, uh, again, Granny Weatherback says, it's just an angry horse with a horn on top. Like, you know, yeah. I, what's so great about that, you know? <laughs> um but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the end of my point. So, yeah. <laughs> um, what did, what did you think of the elves themselves? 
They're interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's I, I find them. Um, I'm glad they weren't revisited. I think there's just enough material. Well, they are a bit in um, We Free Men. Then, oh yeah, well, I'd forgotten about them to be honest with you. No, yeah, but um, that's a kind of a, a spin-off, really. So. No, no, but like uh, I suppose to go about the opposite. Like in this, is the elves coming into our world, and in We Free Men, mm. she goes mm. into the elves' world. Um, but I, yeah, I, I like Pratchett did say I think about the elf queen. Like she's a colorful antagonist, but not one with a lot of depth, so you can't overuse her. It's true, um, but, but I think there but they is, work so well here. There is there is enough depth to weave a really rich tale out of this one. So like I I wouldn't say I wouldn't even say she's well okay no 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 she's just the right she's got just enough depth for this one just the right amount. Like if you brought her back for another book, it would have been really really dull. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. I really love how when the elves invade, it really does have almost a horror movie vibe yeah, to it. Yeah. You know, once that because it, it happens so suddenly, it's just suddenly a cut, and they're all just kind of wandering the village. It's, it's a bit like a zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. in a way, and it builds to it so well. The whole mm-hmm. book, that wonderful passage where it's where elves are wonderful, they create wonder. Elves are fantastic, they create fantasies and lessons. Uh, As a terrific, terrific they creator. inspire terror. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot of like uh, again, like, just the, how it's structured and how good the writings is. Uh, there's a lot of points like that where you just get this seemingly unrelated paragraph that's just you know building on one of the teams or just on the general atmosphere so that when the payoff comes mm-hmm. it's it's all the richer for it absolutely um, yeah. and I've also had that part at the very beginning when she's talking to a young granny in the circle trying to tempt her in very eerie like it very much has a sense of a sort of folktale uh, mm. horror story um, element of it it does have um, it's it's the one one minor flaw that I'm finding in reading these books is that I all I almost always wish that the villains were explored in more depth because um, even though like the uh, the elf queen is like she, as you say like very creepy and it's really does inspire terror like she, she really does feel like a force to be reckoned with more so than anyone I think we've come across before uh, here because like she's got this otherworldly power in what is already like a mystical world. But um, I do feel that the uh, the elves become a little bit they become powerless a little bit too quickly. You know, like uh, they find oh uh, the librarian can take out elves no problem. Yeah, oh Magrat's able to take out loads of elves, and like suddenly everyone's able to take I, them. I off. was about to say yeah, I mean Magrat and the librarian I don't mind as much probably because Magrat it's such a big deal when she does it, and it, mm. it's like really like I mean the bit where she shoots one of them through the. Uh, that's a wonderful then, moment. Yeah, then comes yes. out and just gives him the box says, this is for you. And like, oh, that's brilliant. And Dwight's being narrated by Sean Ogg, who, I mean, that bit when he's being tortured, I, I felt this, like, that's brilliantly unsettling. Like, the part where it just, you know, there's a line about, like, how bad he is, and then just a paragraph break in, uh, like, he wished his mom was here, or, you know, mm. you, like, just makes him seem just like a terrified little boy in a way that's really affecting. So to have the bill to like horror uh, you know killing the elves set up through that is brilliant and then mm. even to see her from Grebo's point of view or he thought of her as a mouse with legs and but um and the librarian I didn't mind partly because he's kind of a force of nature himself yeah yeah but also because you never get the sense of like oh this is grand now sure we can just get the librarian to 
whatever defeat however many elves there are it's, mm. you never really but I imagine there's at least you know no you don't really feel like that would be the case yeah. so. but it's more when you get those little vignettes with um, Hodgesar and yeah. Mr. Brooks yeah that, now I, I like them in the fact that and I'll, I'll talk about this a a little bit more they they kind of come back to this uh, set up this thing about the land itself and nature rebelling against the elves mm. and like they've been too far away from it and now the country has rejected them like I, I like them in setting up that but yeah it does give it the sense of he's done such a good job of building up the elves as you know terrifying and then they arrive and everyone seems to be panicking but in the midst of everyone panicking you get these little vignettes of just these normal townspeople defeating them and it feels like they should come later you know it feels like there yes. should be like the tide turns and then the normal people like Hodgesar and Mr. Brooks began uh, standing up to the elves rather than they come mm-hmm. before you have uh, Granny's confrontation with the Queen and then McGrath's subsequently even even if um, like rather than putting them well no I, I prefer if actually it's one of the few books I think like it could do with not too many more pages maybe an extra like 30 or 40 pages kind of like just delaying that a little bit but even see there's some lines that kind of, I think hype them up a little bit too much like there's one line that I really like but when you compare it to the finale you're kind of thinking well that does that's makes it a little ineffective it's when um, I forget who they're looking I think the elf queen is looking no sorry it's when I think it's when the elves are attacking Magrat in the dungeon and uh, Magrat says in, in in her mind she's thinking I, I that look it's the look of um, what was it she felt like an organism at the bottom of a microscope mm-hmm. you know it's not so much that they want to kill me it's just looking at me and thinking like they could play with me for a while you know I'm insignificant that whole thing mm-hmm. they really really stress the power of the elves in that moment they seem like almost divine and you know when you see them being defeated so easily later on it just it, it takes it detracts from that although that's again into the whole like appearance versus substance thing isn't it like that oh, yeah, like once you get beyond that glamour induced feeling of inferiority mm. um, you can you can defeat them and like as Granny says I'm better than you madam and that ain't hard you know mm. uh, it do, like it doesn't take a lot once you get past that initial step and the like battle between McGrath and the Queen at the end when McGrath is just basically like you know punching her and kicking her reminded me a lot of Rincewind and Trimon at the end of The Light Fantastic um, where it talks about how you know uh, Rincewind was just this like desperation street fighter and that was kind of overcoming Trimon's like you know uh, conflicted nature and all the time he had put in um, studying and so on and there's a similar feeling here of it's like the last the kind of final fight is actually easy because once you get past the the bullshit of the glamour there's a gritty truth to what's going on here mm. and that is they are just these parasites a parasite universe as Rick Cody says and that one wonderful misunderstanding he has with, with Ponder <laughs> and the uh, coach they are these parasites that once you get over your fear of them and your awe of them you know you can actually you can defeat them quite comprehensively mm. um yeah, it's an interesting idea. As, as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Like the, <laughs> the elves, they create that fear and awe. And beyond that, there isn't anything to fear, you know. There is like a slight level of um, uh, of the meta in this as well. In that, you know, uh, you know how uh, constantly 
uh, Granny and Nanny are talking about elves. It's like, you'll get it all wrong if I tell you it's elves because, like, oh, you have these preconceived notions of elves yeah. in your head. And it's the same for us because, like, you know, let's not, let's not forget that, like, Terry Pratchett, a lot of his inspiration is from Tolkien. Yeah. So, you know, when we, if, if, if he simply said, okay, I'm writing a book and there's going to be elves in it this time it'd be very easy to make the assumption, oh, well, it's going to be like Tolkien's elves. They're going to be like, um, you know, coming around and talking in riddles and mourning over trees and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> well, but, coming after Witches Abroad too, when you had the, the joke about Gollum and the dwarven rooms <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, you would imagine it would be a direct, a more direct nod to Tolkien, but he, he dips deeper into... Exactly. He the, like goes the roots the of folklore. Mm. It's, it's like the whole... He, he actually, he does focus an awful lot on parallel universes which again serves many dual purposes here specifically i think it uh the main thing that i took from it was how it humanizes granny weatherwax but are there any other moments you can think of that were because parallel universes crop up an awful lot in this so yeah i was wondering about that whether it, it could be uh, explored more or not i mean i think they represent like they tie into the elves and i see that elves have like the terrible allure of the life we wish for mm. and that we feel we've somehow irrevocably missed out on, you know, mm. um, in that we see them as these more glamorous, more amazing versions of ourselves and think, oh, we'll never be, oh, I could never be that good. Oh, yeah. Why yeah. can't I ever be that good? And the parallel universe has a similar thing where Granny is getting these looks into, you know, this is how life could have been and how it will never be. And that's what the Queen kind of taunts her with at the end. So, I thought they, they tied in nicely there and that there is a sense of like, you know, worrying about these parallel universes is ultimately silly because um, as, uh, you know, to kind of throw it back to Small Gods from our last episode, a hundred years from now we'll all be dead, but here and now we are alive. Mm. Like this, the now, our real lived experiences and the people we see every day is what matters and, you know, not this kind of, longing for like oh maybe somewhere as Rid Cully says maybe somewhere out there you know uh, everything turned out right and Granny says yes here you know mm. um, and yeah so I thought like the parallel universe and the elves tied neatly uh, together like that absolutely um, yeah and I, like the business of the elf queen taunting Granny I thought was a nice throwback to one of the bits that I I didn't like so much in, in Witches Abroad and we spoke about it when um, when she says that argument with Lily about when Lily left, Granny had to be the good one, and I yes. said I couldn't understand why Granny was kind of adhering to this really dualistic idea of good and bad that the rest of the book seems to reject. But there's a sense of like there's it's it, that notion of her, like on some level beneath her kind of you know no nonsense exterior, pining for a life she could have had, um, or at least occasionally is appealed to here when the uh, queen is taunting her about the parallel universes. And because you've seen her talk about that in another book, it resounded all the more, which Absolutely, is, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. And um, actually another, just a little bit there, there's a bit where um, uh, the elf queen shows granny or kind of taunts her with the future where she's just this gibbering old woman. Like, yeah. and like, because um, aspects of her character do kind of feed into that, you know, that resonates as well. But I find it a beautiful irony as well. Like what you said about um, Granny Weatherback saying, you know, yeah, this is the one where it all worked out. It's ironic that 
uh, Granny Weatherwax tries constantly to be like I think she says it at one point in the book she wants to be the best at anything she does mm-hmm. and with all these parallel universes there's a wonderful irony in that like I think she's actually been she actually is the best possible version of herself there has ever been or can be you know it's mm-hmm. um, just the idea of like not just being the best at anything she can do in this world she's the best any Granny Weatherwax has ever been you know it's just like wow it really kind of hits home like what an efficient assertive which she is you know yeah it's um the other parts about her the queen taunting her about being a mad old woman and the parts in which before talking to Ridcully about parallel universe theory she basically thinks she has dementia mm. are all the more affecting given that Terry Pratchett got Alzheimer's Yes, absolutely, yeah. And uh, this, again... Um, yeah, that was... Uh, sorry, it hit home to me because my uh, my granny's suffering quite badly with dementia at the moment. So it's like... It's kind of rare in a fantasy book you get, a, a, like, a, you know, a lot of kind of in-depth look on the experience of being old. You know, mm-hmm. you might have old characters, but they're, like, usually wise wizards or kings or something who are there to, like... They're rarely examined yeah, in the first person. Yeah, the young protagonist. Exactly, yeah. They're mm. rarely looked at just what's life like for them. Um, mm. And mm. this is both in Granny's kind of fears of going mad and in Hor and Rid Cully's fears of like, oh, you know, I should have gotten with this person when I was younger or what would have happened and so on. Um, yeah, it's something it's, quite refreshing to see dealt with in a fantasy novel. When I was going back to read it, I didn't really think about the entire the angle of uh, Granny Weatherwax, you know, she's fearing her own death. You know how quite a lot of the book kind of um, emphasizes the idea that Granny thinks she's going to die and she's starting to uh, have visions and forgetting where she is. And Mm -hmm. because uh, when when you're going back to read it and you know that when it turns out it's actually the Elf Queen messing with her mind, you tend to forget like how effective that is. But when you go back to read it again, yeah, as you say, you do really read into that and think wow it's this is grand this isn't granny weatherwax the witch who can handle anything this is granny weatherwax the human being like you know this is her with potential flaws and like you know vulnerability which we have we don't really see like in witches abroad i'm sorry to say like even though they attempt it it's not really that effective that uh the humanizing of uh granny weatherwax because they kind of build up the anticipation for um her seeing Lily and the idea of oh god another weather wax maybe she's going to lose this time but that's kind of overshadowed by, by all the hijinks they have mm-hmm. going over in which is abroad and this one it's a lot more um, it's a lot more affecting I think when you read it um, there's one last thing that I'm going to say on this particular subject is uh, going back to the idea of Granny Weatherwax you know being the best there is I think that really hits home and again, humanize her an awful lot at the very end when uh, she brings the unicorn to be shooed in uh, Jason's, um, you know... Forge. Forge, yes, sorry. And she says, the price for being the best is you have to be the best. Yeah. You know, people are always going to go to you. And, you know, he's, obviously she's speaking to him, but you know they're talking about Granny Weatherwax here. It's like, she's <laughs> always the one who's going to have to deal with this shit. So, like, you know, it's... It's it's great because we always admire Granny, but this was a brief glimpse into the toll that it might take on her as a character, and it never really comes up again. 
but it's really nice that it's in this book you know yeah the the, the like um idea of her uh like they're her kind of basically outing her virginity which is probably sort of an open secret but still mm. um uh, a, a big thing um and again i think it's rare you see like a virginal character discussed in a way where it isn't you know they're not set up as some like massive prude or horribly repressed or anything like that mm. um but with the, the business about the price of being the best being the best um is something i hadn't uh, thought of as much as you had but it's, it's coming to me now as you say it that that is another thing that you see in this book with both with jason with that lovely vignette at the start when he's shooing death's horse yes it. that's wonderful so, um but it's also with mcgrath that you know if she kind of like being uh she's really frustrated by the boring uh dull but you know semi-luxurious life she'll have as a, a queen and the price of becoming uh you know to become basically the queen she wants to be uh who actually does things is hard and that's the like you know that's it like the kind of the reward like the the job is its own reward sort of thing you know that like mm. she will be a good queen the queen she wants to be but that will mean standing up to the elves and you know uh, kind of knowing your own mind and putting your foot down and all this hard work and similarly conversely you have Diamanda who basically went to the elves and got power off them so didn't really have to work for it and you know Granny has that scene where she looks at her hands and say you know you never laid out a corpse you've never uh, like done any of yeah. this kind of really these grimy uh, mundane but essential tasks witches do and likewise the elves don't have to work at being you know the the best at all they just kind of they're there and they're glamorous and people love them and that's it whereas this book is about the kind of the ordinary people who have to work really hard for what they get and even when they get it that just brings with it more hard work but hard work is its own reward exactly yeah yeah it's a really interesting way and actually um, what you were saying there about uh, Magrat wanting to be like the um, you know, being the best queen she can possibly be. I think that uh, the journey she goes through to kind of figure that out is really interesting. I know we've talked about this in great length, but I just want to talk a little bit about um, the entire segment where she's exploring the castle. I find really, really effective because um, you know she's at this point. This is the kind of moment where she's finding herself. And I just think it's a really nice bit of visual storytelling that she's, you know, going through the rooms, trying to, like, you know... she She's trying to assert herself. She's trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life. And at the same moment, she's looking through the rooms, trying to find a way to fight the elves. And at the same moment, she realises, A, the kind of person she wants to be, and B, uh, the how to fight the elves. And that's when she comes across the armoury mm-hmm. and sees the picture. And she's like, okay, I have to be a practical, assertive queen and that's how I'm going to fight the elves. You know, it's a wonderful moment. Like, you know, it's just like, there we go. We've, we've, we've figured out both these problems at the same time. Beautiful bit of visual storytelling, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, let me see. Uh, have I got anything else here now? Actually, another little thing is, actually, this whole idea of appearances and how you should look, and again, we see that a lot in Diamanda, it's nice as well that this feeds into Masquerade in a nice little way. Mm-hmm. Just with the whole idea oh, of Agnes and Agnes, yeah. she constantly wants to look like um, the beautiful opera singer. So she makes up this idea, Perdita. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a Perdita X, if I remember yeah. right. 
Oh, does she goes by that name in this one? Yeah, too, yeah, and, and yes. then there's even a like, I I don't know if he's planning it or not, but Nanny says when her and Granny leave the uh, house, they're in like, oh, that uh, like you know that Agnes, that Agnes girl was the only one with any real talents mm. there. Yeah, I mm. feel like it's actually it's so direct that I feel like. Um, Terry Pratchett knew that yeah, was the plan. Yeah, I feel like I think it, he may have because McGrath's story definitely seems to come to a perfect close here. Mm. Yeah. And uh, he does. There's there are points where uh, Agnes talks in the first person, which would be unusual in mm. any other. I mean, you do get the odd ones, but usually it culminates in a joke, and that's it. They're a throwaway character, but in this one it just kind of continues and then peters out. So it's really I I'm looking forward to reading Masquerade now, just kind of see what how that works as a continuation because the way it works now is I wish I could you know extradite uh, Masquerade from my mind and think like would I be thinking huh I wonder how things worked out for Agnes because yeah. the last you hear from her is when uh, they uh, Diamanda and Granny Weatherbacks have the duel in mm-hmm. the town square and then she's just gone and you're like I feel like there was more I do feel like there was more there obviously you know I know there is but it's uh, and that topic what do you think happens to Diamanda we never see her again after this like she isn't dead is she from the elves I'm trying to remember the last time we see her I think is just she's unconscious in the room isn't that it or she's kind of under the control of the elves after she um, uh, lets like um, comes out and tries to get Sean to take off his chain mail but it's never outright said that the elves killed her when they got bored of her or anything I think she did Sorry, I think she's dead. Um, it's a wonderfully eerie bit when she wakes up under their control, and even like her sort of very odd um, choice of language when it's you're wearing chain mail. That's terrible. <laughs> Iron makes you deaf. You know, it's just sort of I don't know. There's something fey and unsettling mm. about it. That I do honestly, in all honesty, I do think that she probably is dead simply because. In most situations, when there's like a character who's like has a loose end and needs to be tied up, I find usually Terry Pratchett has a habit of having even just like a little paragraph at the end. One of my favorites that always sticks out in my mind is actually in Sorcery. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the character, but they pick up. I think it's like a fat jelly baby and prince. Is it? Oh, Creosote. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of ends up. He's just in a tavern, and he starts like romancing the waitress and like you can see in his inner monologue he's lying through his teeth but uh, he's like but I'm getting free drinks out of this so why not you know so it's um it's a nice little throwaway thing but because Diamond doesn't have this I feel like she is probably dead yeah (laughs) although in a weird way I feel like again that speaks to the strength of this book and his development as a writer that when me and Rose done Sorcery one of the complaints we had was that like there's some interesting side characters, but they just seem to hang around without any purpose after they've served their initial purpose for a while. Mm. Like Nigel and Kanina and Creed. So whereas here you have this whole cast of kind of like colorful yokels from Lankra who like are um, once, you know, some of them get to stay and spread their wings a bit and you see a bit more of humanity about them than you thought. But other ones if they're only going to be used for a brief period, he knows just to use them for a brief period and then, mm. you know, shoot them out of the story and doesn't feel any need to keep them in the whole time in a way that would, like, bog the rest of the narrative down. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like uh, Hodges Ah we do come back to again in um, Carpe Juggalum and although I can't remember it, I do feel like that he, he, his character is explored quite a bit more in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I won't be eating those words now later. What did you think of the whole um, the metaphor of bees? 
I liked the idea of like uh, you know elves being like wasps where they're just kind of I love sleeker that. bees that serve no real purpose other than mm-hmm. to to kill and to um, you know to kill and to steal. Um, I always thought that wasps were like uh, a weird but plausible argument for for the existence of like some kind of greater intelligence because if you look at their like their faces look from a human anthropomorphically thinking point of view like they're in a really angry expression <laughs> and they're just these uh, you know but they're not human at all but they're these creatures that serve no purpose other than just to hurt people and other animals <laughs> so it's almost like someone up there is trying to tell us something you know about them it's like yeah, yeah you won't like these guys but um yeah i like the and the metaphor about the, the queens and the kind of like Queens uh, being made and not born. Yeah, yeah. Thing. And McGrath initially kind of panicking about that because it feels so arbitrary that like they're suddenly celebrating her and what makes her different than any of the others. But then kind of embracing the idea of you know you've been you're now you've been chosen and have chosen this role and mm. now have to go with it. Um, the only I'm, I'm still a little confused as to what Granny did at the end with the bees. My understanding of it is that she kind of transferred her consciousness into the bees so that when the elf queen struck out at her, it didn't completely destroy her. Um, and then yeah. at the end, she, you know, after they think she's dead and then she gets it back. But, um, yeah, and I suppose she had to do it with bees because otherwise, because the, the queen can do something similar with the unicorn. If she just went to one animal, like the queen would be able to, see it and just you know would know and yeah I think it is it's it's sort of a case of like um, the way I kind of view it is and this is in very simplistic terms is if you kind of view their mental uh, psychosis battle or whatever you want to call it as kind of a sword fight and granny doesn't have a sword but the queen does and she's lunging at her again and again and granny the only way she can dodge is by jumping from mind to mind uh, but the queen can always turn around and lash at and as you said I think the only way that she can dodge completely is by going into the bees mind and that's literally like trying to swap at a swarm of bees you can do it but it's not really going to have any effect mm-hmm. because they're everywhere you know that's that's more or less how I view it anyway but um, okay. yeah. I do feel it's it's really interesting that um, it does serve it's, it's a nice little kind of one-upmanship I think the whole idea of granny taking over the bees because you have the whole metaphor of Magrat becoming the queen and like she's going on this journey and it's all about her building herself up to be the queen but then even though like Granny Weatherwax is going through all this trouble she has this very slight and it's not dwelled upon at all the idea that like well you might be the queen but you know I'm the swarm you know I'm all the power here like yes you are the queen and everyone thinks like queen bee that's a big thing but why is a queen bee without like uh, the swarm it's like well what's his name actually tells you it's like well the bees are just left outside in the front of the hive and you know just disappear that's it so it's 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 never explicitly kind of it's not a case of granny weatherwax saying well listen magrat you've done well but don't forget like i'm in charge it's it's all done through metaphors and i love that yeah and it's, it's sort of part of her it's not idea malicious that yeah it's magrat changing jobs essentially from which the queen is a step down mm. like even if she accepts that and it's like well you know, I, w- I wish you well, McGrath. I hope you'd be the best queen you can be. It's still a sense of like, you, you know, you traded down from, from becoming a witch. I, I think the bees should also have served as nice. There's an undercurrent throughout the whole thing of like nature versus civilization and the domestication of nature and there being 
they've reached like a sort of balance in Lanka where you have some people like Mr. Brooks or Hodgesar who would in no way like argue that they are in complete control or have complete knowledge over these animals but still sort of use them to a certain extent for their own good and for other people's good mm. more so Mr. Brooks than Hodgesar but still in all um, and on like on the one hand you have kind of elves as just the sort of like utter wildness of nature wildness of nature and on the other hand you have like Ankh-Morpork and civilization and the idea that Annie talks about about these kind of old mysterious places just being knocked down and turned into something boring and having all the magic taken away um, and the relationship they have with the bees sums up the sort of happy medium they have there and that whole idea about um, Lunkra itself almost rejecting the encroachment of Elfland because it's sort of, uh, and, and I liked it, the Queen's plan about marrying um, Berenice and then the King being one with the land again ties back to Weird Sisters when the mm-hmm. land is sort of rejecting Duke Felmet. Um, so like that's that's so cleverly done. But the I- idea, um, it's like the sense of it, if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does sound exist? Like the idea that that land of Lunkra will always be there and has always been there, but the fact that there are people there who have like, attachments to the place and memories of it and some kind of respect for it That's the land itself yeah appreciates mm. that and rejects the sort of um basically kind of like a unknown uncared for wildness that the elves would impose on it you mm. know where, yeah. yeah yeah where it's just you know um nature and humans are kind of fighting against one another rather than cooperating mm. and actually i think um in a way they kind of show the whole idea of like you know the idea of trying to control nature mm-hmm. that uh, in a way the even though like the elves are uh, this kind of force of nature they're trying to control nature in another sense the, the land I suppose um, I think that's kind of visually uh, embodied in the whole uh, shooing of the unicorn thing like they show there they show that um, you know what can happen and you can see like the unicorn going mad because like the iron on his uh, on his hooves. Um, actually, now that I think about it, that, that that metaphor kind of falls down a little bit when you consider the elves are more of a force of nature, and the fact that uh, they shoe uh, horses as well. But no, it's silver they shoe the unicorn with because iron would, would silver. Kill it. Sorry, that's yes. thing where Jason says he won't shoot it with iron because he he doesn't want to kill it. Oh, uh, yes. But I I think it is kind of a balance because like yeah, the unicorn is just like wild, um, like. Uh, nature that the elves have turned to their bidding and then the shooing of it signals a sort of domestication in it you know mm. and and that's kind of where they are in in Lankra where they're by no means a big urbanised city like Angkor in fact their smallness and kind of uh, shambolically rural vi- village uh, community of a kingdom is sent up a lot of times in the book mm. but it, it is like they're sort of in a medium between being in a like wild fight to the death against nature and having completely um, destroyed or ignored it, like uh, people like Morpork would in in the you know in, in yeah, the it's city. all about the balance, yeah, really, yeah, and so. um, the fact that there's a, a, a theorist, a cultural theorist called uh, Henri Lefebvre, who you, you might remember from um, when we studied in college, uh, but he has this idea called new scarcities, where he talks about. Um, how basically abundant or naturally occurring commodities are 
shaped by capitalism in such a way that they appear rare and can just be sold. And he talks about like in terms of, you know, when you're buying an apartment or renting an apartment or a house or so on, stuff like the quality of life and space are things oh, yeah. that, you know, govern the price when he, he's saying it's really, you know, this is really simplifying his point, but he's basically pointing at the irony of these are naturally occurring, utterly abundant things. And the idea that we should be like pay, essentially paying more for life or space is sort of crazy. It's like going on holiday for like, you know, uh, the way things look and like nature and stuff. It's like, yeah, but nature is everywhere, you know, yeah, or it should yeah. be. And then well, in this, you have uh, the joke where the Morris man can actually identify the place where the sun don't shine as an actual place, <laughs> which is not only them missing out on the kind of like joke about it meaning your arse, but also that like in Lankra, all this nature and stuff is so abundant and they're so comfortable with it. Whereas, you know, in, uh, it wouldn't be the case um, in Angmorpork. Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the points that I really have. I think, as you said before, like uh, even though it's an excellent book, it, it doesn't have... Well, actually, I think we did prove that in terms of uh, appearances and that whole... Particularly appearances um, and in terms of storytelling, just because of the way it brought uh, Magrat's art to a close in such a naturalistic and satisfying way, it actually was quite rich, much richer than I thought it would be. But um, all I really have left, as I usually do, are my favourite lines from the book, which I only have two because I had to narrow it down. But one you posted up on Facebook earlier uh, was, personal isn't the same as important. Yeah. People just think it is. And that is actually a wonderful, wonderful line, actually, yeah. because it's not, it's a blatantly honest statement, but not something that we would ever really consider before, if you think about it. It's like, yeah, I mean, now that you think about it, isn't everything that's important personal? Because mm-hmm. everything that's important to all of us is a very personal thing. Like, it kind of makes you wonder about, like, uh, importance as a, you know, ideal. So, you know. Yeah, well, it's something we'll think about going ahead because I think Carrots is something very similar in the next book, uh, in Men at Arms. Oh. I believe that, I believe is our next one. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful, like, it, it very much sums up Granny's way of, of looking at the world. It's very profound, I have yeah. to say, now, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other line that I like is nowhere near as profound. It was just, go ahead, bake my quiche. <laughs> Which Magrat says before her wedding. I just really like that a lot. But, um... Yes, that's all I have on that. Um, yeah, the thing, uh, last thing I want to say, it's just about like sort of a follow-on from what I was talking about there, but like, if you look, I think more pork and, uh, like represent this extreme in this world of urbanization and kind of um, uh, distance or uh, alienation from nature. Mm-hmm. And the elves representing another extreme of like when pre kind of pre iron pre any civilization pre domestication of animals when it almost felt like humanity is in a battle against nature i really feel like it makes them seem like they're the perfect ultimate adversaries for the witches that way and it's kind of hinted at like the first witches emerged from uh nanny things from like women who had lost their husbands or their children to the elves because the witches sort of make sense of in their their function as healers as midwives as people who take care of the dead make sense of a lot of the kind of harshness of the world for their communities and the irrational fear of 
and all of a sudden these like fair folk in in real life as in this world emerge from like the feeling of living in a very hostile nature that you couldn't really explain you know about like people mysteriously vanishing or strange illnesses you couldn't cope with like all of these the explanation the only explanation people could devise was of these very capricious strange beings who were just picking on humanity you know mm-hmm. um and in the same way that maybe we don't you know have that folklore to the same extent now Although maybe we do a bit with Danny Healy Ray talking about uh, that road's not working because it's <laughs> built over a fairy fort. Um, but in the same way that most of us don't really have it now because of things like yeah, scientific advances and even the kind of um, uh, yeah scientific advances, like they they don't have it so much in Lankara because they have witches there to help them make sense of the world. Exactly, so yeah. DLs make a really nice um, opposite for witches in that sense. And really adds to the sense of this book being the kind of perfect culmination of the trilogy of witch books in the course and makes me very curious about seeing the remaining I mean there are only really two remaining Lanker witches books in um, mm. uh, Masquerade and Carpage of Gale and if we're considering Tiffany Aching a, a sub-series of its own so it makes me curious to read them in light of this feeling like such a perfect climax mm. to to the ideas uh, of the first three Lanker witches books it's interesting what you're saying there about like um, you know the community looking to witches to solve the problems and the elves being be kind of the counterbalance of that kind of strikes me as like it's kind of like the elves at the internet and uh, elves are like fake news <laughs> if you think about it like <laughs> we'll always have to bring Trump into this don't you well pretty much hey man let's keep our sad political <laughs> views out of this um, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah there is a sense of them like kind of they kind of offer, um, you know, I suppose not even fake answers, but like you know, fake power, like you know, like Diamanda has, like, but they keep taking. So it's kind of, yeah. If well, you were to read into this metaphor, I suppose what I'd be saying is that yeah, you can keep looking, investing into fake news, but eventually you're just going to be giving out nonsense and uh, you know, giving, well, throwing the net wider than fake news. I think the idea of them representing a kind of uh, like glamorized uh you know light that's better than yours and it'll never have but if only you could have certainly speaks to a lot of social media culture in general like and the kind of anxieties oh, yeah, it can yeah. promote in people absolutely uh, both yeah socially in things like instagram and, and facebook and twitter and the idea of fear of out that um somebody out uh, everyone else is having a much better time than you are um but yeah but also from the kind of the, the news element of it too of getting this feeling of um, uh, helplessness in the wake of all of this information you're being confronted with and, you know, this sense of, oh, there's a much, there's a better world out there, but we'll never have it and the uh, rage that that brings and so on. You could also view it as, um, in the most cynical manner possible, you could uh, view it as the way the public views celebrities. Oh, yeah. like if you compare yeah, if you compare so. like elves to celebrity and maybe witches to the likes of scientists and doctors and you know how um you know they're the people who are improving our lives mm-hmm. whereas celebrities they're the ones we're obsessed with you know yeah like, you know we, we kind of dismiss all these people who are working so hard to make our world a better place and we're just obsessed with these people who really just take from us if you get right down to it yeah so yeah. Well, I don't know. Some of them give something back. I mean, well, no, in a certain course, context, yeah. Terry Pratchett was a celebrity. This, this is why I said the most cynical of views. Yeah. The most cynical of views. Um, <laughs> the, the internet stuff we, we kind of drew is like 
I think interesting, but obviously very much off the top of our own heads because there's no way mm. uh, he, Terry Pratchett was not oh, I don't know, he was heavily involved in computers and things like that, but That's true. I don't know. There, there's apparently an interview from like the late 80s, early 90s where David Bowie basically predicts the internet. Um, yeah. So uh, Pete Townsend kind of predicted it in um, the concept album for The Who he wanted to do after Tommy that eventually became Who's Next. So maybe maybe Pratchett was in their number in, uh, in uh, our elves as social media analogs. But one thing that comes through a bit clearer and that he probably did mean to draw the parallels with weirdly is Aliens, where the way the way McGrath sees the Queen when all the glamour fades off is like a kind of um, grey alien, you know, that's like mm. the big eyes, tiny nose, triangular face. Yeah. Um, there's actually... a bit at the start where he alludes to them coming from space when he talks about like when did this begin with a bunch of rock hurling towards the earth's surface thousands of years ago You've actually, I, I wonder if there's a certain sense of a similar sense of like the idea of us glamorizing aliens being a failure to appreciate what's there in front of us and certainly you have things like ancient alien theories really are often criticized for how often they um uh neglect or kind of like tacitly insult uh, older cultures by saying oh there's no way these dopey Egyptians could have built these pyramids themselves <laughs> they must have aliens helping them and like elves sort of being similar there and that they like inspire a glamour that basically rejects the mundane but really valuable things in life yeah yeah actually that reminds me a little bit not just of aliens but lads this is going to be like a real fat, uh, you know nerdy kind of uh, conclusion to this but it also reminds me of uh, dinosaurs I remember like I think it was the end of Walking with Dinosaurs, they say, and if you ever wonder, like, why we don't have modern-day dinosaurs, or why we don't have dinosaurs walking around now, we actually do, and they just cut to loads of footage of birds who are, like, all around, like, around this age of dinosaurs, but we don't appreciate them because they've always been there, they're really (laughs) mundane, you know, it's like, okay, birds, whatever, but, like, if a T-Rex walked down the street, you'd be like, whoa, you know, so it's... Yeah, we're talking. There's, no. th- there's a, there are many things that the elves and witches can stand in for. It seems no nineties uh, box office films being made about Velociraptors. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Anyway, so um, um, so I suppose all that uh, remains is for us to rank this. I'm not gonna lie. This is a very easy one for me. I put it right at the top. Yeah, yeah, I think this is this is tough because I I adore pyramids and I mean as we we got into it last week I I thought small gods should have been number one but um I I don't know even if 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 I had have kind of uh, like had my way bullied you into making small gods number one whether this would have still still leapfrogged it anyway into the number one spot this is a really 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 amazing book mm-hmm, um, absolutely it's oh yeah it's it's structured so perfectly there's so many great lines of dialogue the characterization is excellent the things it touches on like it touches up for me like all of the folklore bits are so deep and dark and really speak to the roots and the guts of humanity and the beginnings of civilization and a lot of the stuff that's like always really bubbling under the surface of um of civilization that we're not really so far away from um and then again like the whole the glamour of the elves is something that not only speaks to all of those kind of uh deep dark beginning you know uh early days of of human civilization but also as you said with stuff like celebrities and the internet and then just like general kind of uh our general tendency to prize appearing over substance 
is something that's really relatable anyway. Uh, and we said about when you boil it down, you can boil this book, like the kind of key themes or ideas behind this book down into something really basic and glib uh, and that would be doing it a terrible disservice but there's also a brilliance in that that mm. like you know yes it is saying something really simple but it's saying something it's it's saying that absolutely brilliantly it's saying it like better than a lot of people could say these these really simple things. You can yeah. compare it to Munstrom Ridicule's mind, you know, just because it's simple doesn't mean it isn't like a freight train, like a, a force of nature, you know? Yeah. yeah. That, like the elves themselves. Wow, metaphors work really well for this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, as you said, like, it's it's got all those themes, it's got so much to explore. It, it really, um, it hits home, it really explores the world of the Discworld in a way that I don't, even though it's it's kind of localised purely to Lancre, that's such a huge part of the Discworld universe because, I mean, you know, comparatively, Ankh-Morpork is far, far bigger, but the way we perceive it, it's not really, you know. The Ankh-Morpork, I think um, it's it's best, uh, it's, it's when you see it through the eye, I... Imes. The Eyes of Sam Vimes, which I'm going to call Imes from now on. The Imes of the Vimes. Eyes of Vimes. Um, that's when you get to see Ang Morpork, you know, at its at its mo- at its richest. Ah, richest. Excuse me. Sorry for um, uh, stu- stuttering and the like. But um, yeah, this is the best example of uh, Longra that we've seen in any book so far, and I just think that they explore it in a really, really um, beautiful way. And you know, all of the characters. You know, it's the revelations. You know, Magrat has her wonderful conclusion. Granny Weatherwax is finally humanized. And in this book, more than any other one, I feel like Nanny Og really, really, you really get a sense of her as a strong character, not just a sidekick, but someone who could actually stand on her own two feet outside of the coven, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, like I'm looking at the other, you know, kind of books in the top three here, all of which are excellent, but. Like for me, like it's got amazing ideas and imagery like pyramids, but it's got better characters than pyramids. Mm. And it's it it's sort of its roots run deeper and it touches off more powerful things than Garrett's Guards does. And it also has the advantage in like because it feels like an ending of this you know, even though we will get two more Lunker Witches books, um the like the characterization of, of the like there are wonderful characters in guards guards that we'll see later mm. but like this is like the you know the kind of like the best outings probably for the the, the tree witches here and for a lot of the you know like a lot of the sub characters you, you could you you could argue i mean it's arguable but you could argue this is like the be, like the best you know reed cully and kind of ponder stibbons um bits as well like you know i do think um, you have something there yeah absolutely because... so like that's that's where it, I, I think like it, it you know it beats guards guards and even something like small gods um like it's it's a it's a weird thing where small part of i think part of small gods brilliance is that it's so standalone like other than that we i think we talked about it when we done the episode other than the bit with the librarian you could read it without reading any other discord books mm-hmm. and it, like it, it would still be enough but i think part of lords and ladies strength is that while it would work excellently as a standalone book it draws so brilliantly from all of the ones that have have gone before in a way that makes it feel like a you know such an excellent realization of of, of those ideas so what you're saying is this is basically the captain america civil war of the discworld books um, 
Is that what Captain America done with the other Captain America? Is Captain America's Civil Wars? Well, you know the way, like all. Sorry, we're going. Cap- Captain America: Winter Soldier is probably still my, still my favorite of the Marvel films. So. Well, you know, just I mean, like, and that one draws on its universe in a really, really like in, in a really um, effective way. Whereas, like other ones, like they feel the need to draw on the universe, and it's not really that great. Whereas this one does it. Like Lords and Ladies draws on the universe in a way that feels earned. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for your last heroes, Captain America, uh, Civil War, or the Avengers, right? Because that's <laughs> the one that brings together a bunch of like characters that we mainly associate with different sub series. True, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, enough tortured Marvel analogies for me to one of us. This is number one. Yes. This is an excellent book. If you somehow, for some reason, haven't read this book, for God's sake, read it. You won't regret it. It'll Do it! Do it now! Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 brilliant. Um, oh yeah, I, I I always forget this, but um, yeah, if if God knows where you're listening to this, how you're listening to this, if you liked it, you can find Radio Morpork on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Podcast Addict, on a lot of other streaming services. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at RadioMorpork at gmail.com or you can look us up on Facebook and on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you if you have any comments or feedback on any of the episodes we've done. Even if you're only catching up with our back catalogue now and commenting on something me I recorded with Rose two years ago, still love to hear about it. Um, and any questions or comments for future episodes are uh, very welcome too. And our next episode is... Uh, Men at Arms. Men at Arms, yeah, I believe, yeah. yes. Uh, so my number is 085. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Men at Arms will be our next one. And it'll be interesting to see because I... I'm interested... I, one thing I'm really looking forward to this is find out which of the volumes books actually stands out as the best in my mind. Um, I might go back and read Guards Guard at some stage, actually, because... I'd like to have the entire context of the entire Guard series in my head. Um, although I think we both think that's going to be Nightwatch, probably. Well, we'll see when we get there. I I, I think it would be curious because I've got um, Guards, Guards, Men in Arms, and Feet of Clay in one omnibus. Oh. So I, I always used to read them, to three of them together. And this will be the first time where I'm probably just like reading Men in Arms in sequence with the other books. But like you know, whatever, over a year since I've last read Guards, Guards, um, which will be interesting because, again, whereas Witches Abroad and Lords and Ladies came almost hot in the heels of one another, like you just had small gods in between, mm. there was quite a gap between Guards, Guards yeah. and Men in Arms. So it'll be curious in that way. Oh, I should say also, um, if you if if you like what you've heard here, um, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever streaming services you watched and spread the good word of Radio Moorpark. Um, we don't get any money for this, so we're doing it purely to as an excuse to read Discworld and excuse to buttress our fragile egos. To be so fair, some, we some, don't we don't really spend any money doing this either. <laughs> well, actually, we're no, drinking these beers. <laughs> that's not true. Actually, I couldn't find my copy of Men at Arms, so I had to buy another one now. But then it's a lovely hardback edition, so it feels kind of worth it. I had to do the same with Lords and Ladies. So, yeah, so then. again, absolutely worth it. But uh, yeah, we're not asking for money at this point. We're just asking you for love. And your attention. And a bit of money. Um, <laughs> if you, you want see us to. on the street or something. Uh, <laughs> um, and love and attention is what we hope to give to the uh, Discworld series because it's so, so worthy of it. Love, attention and 
painfully in-depth analysis. Are you glamouring the audience? <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> That's all from us. Thank you, everybody, and good night.